CoinWorld Plus is your new way to collect, manage your inventory, digitally authenticate coins, create your want list, buy and sell coins, and much more. Learn more about CoinWorld Plus at CoinWorldPlus.com or download the app now at Google Play or the App Store. Welcome to the CoinWorld Podcast with your host, Jeff Stark. And as I've said from day one of this show, this is a big tent hobby. There's a lot of room for folks. And Larry Jewett. And learning has been such a tremendous amount of this journey. The Coin World Podcast. Hello again and welcome to the Coin World Podcast. We're so glad you came along to join us right here. It's good to be back here as well. I appreciate Jeff and Chris stepping up for the last couple of weeks. I'm Larry Jewett. And I'm Jeff Stark, and we are excited because we get to delve into the modern world coin market and, to a lesser extent, the U.S. market because of our interview with Louis Galino, who is a noted expert and author exploring the modern market. So uh, stick around for that. There's some actionable tips. You know, we were able to coax out of Lewis, and um, you'll want to stay around for that because, um, you know, there's a lot of challenges in that area, but there's a few ways to make it a little easier to uh, navigate. So thanks again for CoinWorld Plus for being here and letting us do what we do. Thank you for staying tuned, as it were, for what we're doing. And, um, yeah, I, I don't know, anything, anything to add in that regard, Larry? Yeah, really, because uh, the idea of the moderns, a lot of times the people get so focused on uh, the, you know, the fact that these some of these coins are hundreds of years old. Now, if you're talking world coins, you can be talking centuries, you know, more than just a couple of hundred years there. And it's just so neat that I, I don't think that people can fully appreciate the wide spectrum that is available in the modern. There are still lots of mints out there that are doing great work all across the world. I mean, sometimes it's tough to keep track of what's going on in your own country, but uh, just the idea that these other mints, and I've been fortunate enough to buy some things from Australia or from the Royal Mint or places like that, but that's just scratching the surface. And uh, it's great that our guest is able to keep track of all that and keep uh, an idea on it because he's he's very passionate about what he does and how he conveys the message. I mean, I look I enjoy reading a lot of the contributions that he makes in several areas, but I've especially enjoyed lately. He's been uh, somewhat regular here in CoinWorld. Oh, yeah. In fact, uh, this latest issue, he and Thomas Urum co-authored a guest commentary about the U.S. Mint's decision to cancel plans for sales of the commemorative Morgan and Peace dollars. The monthly issue the week prior, uh, Lewis wrote the main story, uh, World Coin Story, about the Simpsons' 35th anniversary. He also did uh, Going Topical. He writes Going Topical every other month. You know, he's just a regular and valued contributor to Coin World, and we, we are so fortunate to have his voice serving the market and available to learn from and share his insights in print, but then, of course, obviously, and also notably in this week's podcast, this one that you're listening to right now. Yeah, as a matter of fact, it's interesting you bring up about the 2022, the plans that were canceled regarding the uh, Morgan and Peace dollars, because that was also a topic of uh, William T. Gibbs editorial recently when that news came down. But what I found especially interesting in the most recent issue of Coin World was, again, the editorial pertaining this time to the Congressional Gold Medals. And there, there are several stories in the uh, latest issue of Coin World regarding uh, some proposals put forth by the Congressional Gold Medals. And, you know, is too much is, is too much happening here? What's going on? And that kind of piqued my interest a little bit about the Congressional Gold Medals. And I looked a little bit back into it and what all is involved here, because, you know, it's easy to say that, hey, there's too much going on, or this person doesn't deserve it, or that person doesn't deserve it. I mean, that's the biggest thing right there, because just because you don't know of the contributions of somebody, that doesn't mean you can say that they're worthy or not, because I took a look at the list, and one of the things I want to point out here, I never heard of Joseph Francis. I honestly, I mean, I am in the, uh, you know, in the autumn of my age, so to speak, but I can never say, I was never taught about the inventor Joseph Francis, I never knew anything about what this individual contributed. And he was honored with a Congressional Gold Medal 
for life-saving. And I'm going, well, wait a minute. So I did a little research into it. Come to find out, you know, he was pretty integral in uh, creating lifeboats and life, uh, life-saving life devices like that. In fact, one was even on display at the uh, American Museum of Natural History. And uh, just the idea that this gentleman made these contributions. In fact, it was worldwide. He got a, a jewel-encrusted snuff box from Napoleon III for his contributions, in addition to our Congressional Gold Medal. So that was really interesting. And just take a look at the list of all the people that have been the subject of Congressional Gold Medals. And of course, for those of us who are collectors like you yourself, I mean, the replica medals are the things that we really cherish. As this show drops, uh, last weekend, I went to a coin show and I, I added four more bronze duplicates of these congressionally mandated medals for my collection. One of them is a 1983 Vietnam Veterans POW MIA medal. You know, there's actually two sizes of the bronze of the small bronze medals from the U.S. Mint. One's one and a half inches, and the smaller one is like one and three sixteenths. Don't don't slap me if I got those wrong, but I believe those are the exact sizes. But um, so the Vietnam one is a smaller one, and then the uh, the other three that I got were two of them were for code talkers for World War II. Uh, one of them for the Navajo Code Talkers as an act of Congress from 2000. Another one was for the Cherokee Nation Code Talkers from two, uh, an act of Congress 2008. And then the third one was the Little Rock Nine, which, you know, collectors of modern U.S. commemoratives know that they feature on a commemorative coin. Uh, I didn't realize they were on a congressional gold medal and in this case, a bronze duplicate. But this is, I've mentioned this before, but this is one of my, the areas that I love because they're, um, they're so fun and it's affordable. I mean, all of these medals were $3 or less. And I'm sure I paid less than that because, you know, you bunch of, bundle a bunch of stuff together and the dealer offers you a little discount and whatever. It was just fun. And, and it's, as I was telling Larry before the show, I'd, I'd love to get it like an album and just put them in there and sort of organize them thematically or probably that's the best way, not chronologically, because some of the topics, you know, they're all over the place. You want to put all the sports stars together. You want to put all the military folks together. You want to put all the, you know, humanitarians together, whatever, Mother Teresa or, you know, some of these others. It's just fun and it's it's nothing I'm ever going to get rich on. I can't, you know, I can't make a business out of this. It's just, it's just fun. And that's okay. You know, fun's not a business model, but it sure is a way to enjoy the hobby. You, not everything has to be viewed with a mind to how am I going to extract <laughs> the maximum amount of value monetarily. It was just, you know, so much fun for me to go to this show and make a day of it with a couple friends from local coin club. And we hit the floor and found a few things and we had lunch and we, you know, it was just, it was just a nice day and um, that's okay. That's just the way I want to experience it now. And you know, the, these medals are, are just so fun. Although like you say, yeah, there's some of them. I, I mean, I've heard of Natan Sharansky, but I believe he's uh, been honored with a uh, bronze medal back in the seventies or eighties he was a Soviet dissident. How important is that in the current climate? Uh, you know, you have folks, uh, everything from uh, American balloonist to the U.S. connection to the Netherlands, to the Red Cross, to there's General Colin Powell received one. There's, there's actually a, a bronze medal for Gulf War veterans. I found that in the last year or so and thought, how neat is that? How cool is that? Because I didn't know about it. I had never seen one. And, you know, again, that fits nicely with, you know, if I look back at what happened in my lifetime, I can remember that, you know, my younger sister was born the day the war started. And, you know, it's just one of these things that it's tougher to find some of these pieces than the value they have. But that's the joy of it. It's all about the thrill of the hunt and adding these pieces periodically and uh, learning about 
the circumstances of, of their manufacturer and, you know, the artists that created them and all that. So hopefully I'm not alone, but part of me wishes I were alone because I don't want the competition. <laughs> uh, but, part you know, ho- hopefully people can see these and appreciate these for what they are. Eventually, maybe by the time I'm ready to get rid of them, they, they won't just be 2 and $3 each. <laughs> yeah, there is... So much to the history of this nation, uh, you know, and relative to the world, we don't have a lot of history still. But the idea that uh, these were primarily started off as military honors when you go back into the American Revolution, the War of 1812 up through the mid-1840s, and you start to see that the nation starts to recognize it's all, you know, this is more or less about the growth of a nation and how the nation grew. And you're talking about those particular pieces, the Code Talkers piece, and you wonder what the times were like. And it's not something that you see every day in Little Rock Nine, of course, what uh, chapter they had in the history. And I think about this as I was looking at this Joseph Francis, and I, I don't have the medal or don't have the duplicate, nothing like that. But just the idea is like, I learned something. And I learned something that I didn't know about. And it's just like the idea is like, what else is there that I don't know about? What else is there that I could learn about? And again, you talked about uh, some of the the people, the balloonists. You may not think, well, they're not worthy of this. But, you know, look at what they've done. There's a lot of aeronautical pioneers that have have been so awarded with uh, Congressional Gold Medals. There's a lot of this, the idea that this was a goodwill gesture toward a lot of folks. Among the first lifesavers were not citizens of the United States, but they did rescue citizens of the United States. And again, if you like history, this is a page turner right here because just knowing that these congressional gold medals be helped to establish the nation and the growth of the nation and the idea that we can acquire the bronze duplicates and these, these metal duplicates just for ourselves so that we can take a look at it. A lot of times, some pieces in our collection become conversation pieces. I'm still carrying that 1921 Morgan, but just about everybody that I've talked to has seen it. Now I might have something else that I might show to them. Just recently purchased a, uh, a token that I carry around now. And maybe one of these uh, duplicate medals would be a great thing to have to show to somebody who might have some kind of interest in history or even in the, the, the collecting side of it. So there's value. And again, value does not have a dollar sign. If you look up the word value in the dictionary, there's not a dollar sign in front of it. It starts with a V. And what that means is it just depends on what you determine the value to be. And yeah. sometimes the value comes in nostalgia. You have a you know direct correlation to the start of a war through a family. But sometimes the idea of I'm interested in cars, I'm interested in this. You know, Charles Schultz got a medal. You know, he's deserving uh-huh. it, you know, because of uh, just because of Snoopy for me. But, you know, just the idea right there. But there's so much right there. This is just another avenue that it's not. Washington on the one, Lincoln on the five, Jefferson on the two. It's yeah. just uh, more to it than that. So, and you talk about a pocket piece. Now, you know, maybe you get one of the 2016 Code Talker dollars, or maybe I get one of those, and I show people the coin and the medal and say, "Look, you know, this is this is a medal that we issued. You know, America celebrated their uh, service to the country in the war, and here's a dollar that also does that, and you can spend this and." This is not meant for being spent. So, I mean, yeah, the intersections are are great. <laughs> yeah, no and, doubt and, about that. And varied. My gosh, you know, I, I don't remember how many couple, almost 300 congressionally uh, gold medals, congressional gold medals been issued or awarded or something. And Yeah, I, mean, I knew it was it, a lot because I stopped counting at 162. So, and I was no well, maybe, maybe I'm off, but I knew it was several no. hundred. No, it's several hundred. Trust me. Yeah. So trust me on that. Uh, you know, and, and there's some, like some of these that I think if you ask our colleague, Paul jokes, cause he's covered this for, for decades. Um, some of the recipients of the congressional gold medals would not sign off on allowing the mint to sell bronze duplicates. Um, I believe Frank Sinatra received one, but you can't, you and I can't go buy a U.S. Mint made Frank Sinatra bronze medal because the family looked at it as usurping their commercial interest. And, uh, you know, so there's things like that that add a little twist to it. It's like, uh, oh, really? <laughs> you know, I mean, you, you look at the list and you start, if you're going to use that as a checklist, well, you know, it, it's, you're going <laughs> well, to have to. Yeah, good luck finding that George Washington. 
So <laughs> yeah. So so you know, I mean, it, it's um, well. I mean, there's there's all sorts of Washington medals, U.S. Mint medals that were. Uh, in fact, another one that I that I picked up the other day that um, is not a congressionally mandated medal was issued by the Mint, and it's called a Mint Oath Medal, and um, it has Washington on the obverse, and on the back it has some phrase about you know uh, Mint employees swearing their allegiance uh, to the Mint, and it was you know ten dollars or something, and I, I thought oh my gosh you know that's too cool not to have. And again, you know, it's, it's a cheap, fun, historic delving into the issue. It's, you know, understanding, trying to place the item in context, that's going to give me more riches and rewards than any sort of monetary uh, thing at all. So yeah. And one other thing too, is I'm not going to own these, but they're on display in Colorado Springs. Now they, as uh, Dwight Manley made the donation back in August, Oh yeah, some great medals. And of course that's now part of the ANA display that uh, visit that's on the uh, list to hopefully accomplish in 22 or 23 is to see those great items that they have out there. They just unveiled that recently during the national money show. So just the idea that we were talking back in that that period back there in the Washington times, there's uh, certainly some great examples going to be able to be viewed. You don't have to add them to your collection to make them valuable because they can be valuable as you see them as well. As we, we learn about a lot of these museum displays and hopefully we'll begin to see more displays and more types of uh, things as we continue to go along with this. But uh, history is so very important, at least in my mind too. And that's why we always devote a segment of this program to uh, this particular day in uh, numismatic history within a few few weeks or a few days actually. So I know you've been doing your research and what have you come up with for this issue? Yeah, so I think the fun thing that stuck out to me for March 30th, uh, 1966, was the debut of the first copper nickel clad dimes uh, into circulation. And and, uh, students of the hobby may be familiar with how the transition away from 90% silver coinage to copper nickel clad coinage here in the U.S., took a few years and you know the the mint was striking 1964 dated silver coins uh silver dimes and quarters into the 1960s they were striking 1964 dated into 1966 i mean they were striking 1964 dated nickels into 1965 or 66 um and, you know, if you grab a pile of nickels, you'll often be able to find uh, a few of them just because of their prevalence, because of that need for uh, a greater need for coinage then. That took a while for the Mint to do. And so 1966, March 30th, was when uh, that move was made. And I believe that those coins that would have been entered circulation that day, uh, the dimes, were probably dated 1965, uh, not 1966, and not certainly 1964 of the silver variety. So, it, you know, the 1960s were such an important time for the hobby for not only the hobby in general or writ large, but American society. You know, it wasn't just oh, there was a lot of things that affected people who were paying attention to the hobby. The, the tentacles of this, the, the effect of this, were felt by the everyday citizen uh, because they saw their coinage change composition. They saw silver certificates being uh, redeemed for silver. They saw this, um, you know, greater mintages, you know, Yes, it was important for the hobby, but it it had ramifications at a national level. So that, to me, was what stood out for this week in numismatic history. And that's a great uh, great correlation right there, too, because uh, that's just a reminder of what things were like in the uh, 60s and how it made that change. That was the transition period that's, that's very, very interesting. Our guest later on coming up is uh, Louis Galino, and he's got some interesting things to say. But uh, Louis Galino has been part of our Coin World family for more than just this podcast. In fact, I believe 
He started with us, uh, what was it, 2015? Yes. Lewis has been writing about numismatic topics since 2011, and he joined the Coin World Fold in 2015. So, you know, let's look at an issue from back then, the uh, for this week in Coin World history, we go to the March 30th, 2015 issue. And I was reminded looking at the news, wow, I had uh, just an enormous number of stories because that was the year that I got to go to the Portland American Numismatic Association show. The national money show was in Portland, Oregon that year. And, um, what a great time that was. And uh, I took some time after the show to have a vacation out there before flying back to Ohio. But at the show, I got to cover the Citizens Coinage Advisory Committee. I covered the American Numismatic Association Board of Governors meeting. And, um, you know, it was just, it ended up being, I had like four big news stories right up front or three or four. But that's not what caught my eye. What caught my eye was on page five, the sale of a gold Nobel Prize, the first example awarded for uh, Nobel Prize for economics, which realized almost $400,000 in an auction. And I don't know if this was the sale that sort of kicked it off. And the winner of that was a Simon Smith Kuznets. I never heard of the guy. Right. I mean, I, you know, if you you say famous economist and, you know, Friedrich Hayek or, you know, some of these other names would would come to mind. And this was 1971 that it was awarded, you know. So, yeah, it was before my lifetime, but it was not that long before my lifetime. But it's it speaks to you talking about metals and the impact that people have, how history can obliterate some of the important names and, and the stories of people that had important roles. I think if, if you ask somebody, is somebody who received a Nobel Prize somebody we should know about? Or, you know, is their accomplishment something about which we should be aware? You, a lot of people would say, yeah, you know, obviously they got a Nobel Prize. That's pretty important. That's pretty exclusive. Well, here's somebody who I never heard of and I couldn't tell you what they did, but they got a Nobel Prize. And darn if it didn't sell for almost $400,000. And there was a, a couple years in there where it seemed like every three months there was a Nobel Prize, gold Nobel Prize coming up at auction, selling for astronomical sums, even I think one or two of them more than a million dollars. And it's just a reminder that there's this whole other area out there that's not moored to the you know U.S. mint products uh, or world mint products of today or classic times that uh, you know are important and maybe are worth considering or at least being aware of. Uh, you know, if I were running a shop and a, a gold Nobel Prize came in, if I didn't know about it, I could very well get snookered or I could get, you know, I could, well, you know, I'll give you melt value or whatever. And, and the person thinks I'm a, a cheater or whatever. And it's like, well, wait a minute. You know, this, this is a complex issue and there's more to it. And anytime you can learn about something, expand your knowledge, uh, you know, the better, because then you can appreciate the depth and the breadth of, of the hobby. So that's what to me jumped out and it just made sense given our discussion of medallic history. Awesome. Well, on the letters page, we have uh, one particular letter that I enjoyed reading. It says, go to a show and have fun. Recently, I decided to attend one of the local shows to scope out some of the down pricing frenzy that may be around, especially with the price of silver still being at $17.20. The record, this is from 2015. It's currently $25.01, last I looked. Plus, I wanted to fill in a few holes in my collection. As I pulled into the parking lot of the show, I found it packed. As I entered the show venue, all of the dealer table space was full, and there was a frenzy on the floor. I began to scan the merchandise available for sale. 
About 95% of the dealers at this show dealt only with the usual suspects of traditional collectibles, such as Morgan and Peace dollars. I certainly have an interest in traditional coin collecting fair, but recently my interest had been piqued by the Australian Perth Mints Lunar Series, and I found a few dealers offering coins from this series. No matter your interest in numismatics, learning and researching our country's history and other countries' histories and traditions, as well as visiting a local coin show and walking the bourse to meet new people and learning as much as you can from the new areas, it's always fun and always exciting. And that's by Robert Matisha. The address was withheld. So again, it comes down to it. I know this upcoming weekend is the uh, return of the Whitman Coin Expo over in Baltimore. We ourselves kind of gearing up to make our way to Schaumburg, Illinois, to Central States Numismatic Society and getting their convention back up underway. And there's there's just a lot of excitement about this. And it's when you walk through the door, it's the old saying from the old Pawn Stars, you never know what's coming through that door. So you never know what you're going to see there, even though you think you might know. It's always neat. It says, go to a show and have fun. Whether you buy anything, but you just get around the people that you know, you have fun. And that's just neat. I mean, I just love reading those and love seeing them. And also on that very same page was our Reader's Ask page. And you had the duty to respond to these because one was an old French coin and the other was a uh, circa 1850 passport for a Royal Palace medallion. So I read yes, those too. Except it wasn't a passport, as nope. our ex, as our expert Dmitry Markov confirmed. So, but anyway, yes, uh, you know, there's. Um, I, I'm actually I'm not going to Baltimore. I'm planning on going to a little one day show here across the river and spend a few hours. Nothing, nothing major. But hey, they the site where they host it, they have a barbecue every month, and this is the the uh, weekend for it. So. You know, I'll get some coins and I'll get some barbecue. You can't go wrong with that. <laughs> yeah, but be careful. Don't uh, don't mix the two. Keep them separate here. <laughs> yeah, so, yes. I, I, otherwise, you'll be put into a cleaning situation. That's not a good situation. No, I don't want to have um, my coins dripping in sauce, um, you know. No, no. It could be acidic for one thing. So, yes, for no. sure. Hey, so, uh, you know, last episode... I ask Chris a question, but since he's not here, you get to step in and try to answer for him. Yeah, that's fine, because I listened to the episode. Great interview. appreciate what Mike Garofalo had to say and uh, really provided some great insight as we try to make all of these provide some great insight. And it's nice of you to tailor that question that you had to Chris right into my collecting wheelhouse. That was beautiful. <laughs> yes. So uh, we were talking about, um, I, I mentioned Oklahoma because that's where Atmex is and that's where Mike Garofalo is now that, uh, you know, since he joined that firm so many years ago. And I wanted to talk about state quarters. Why not? Um, beginner level question, maybe. But um, I wanted to know what the major design elements were on the Oklahoma State Quarter. Is there any chance that uh, you happen to know what those elements are? Well, yeah, because this happened to be one of the first ones that I got. And I remember that I got both the P and the D. And uh, the interesting part of it is how large on the, uh, you, you see the main image there, and that is the state bird of the state of Oklahoma, which is the scissor-tailed flycatcher. And it's very distinct that you can tell because of the way the tail is shaped there. But what really intrigued me was the rest of the design elements around there because I, I used to live in Arkansas, right on the border of Oklahoma. And it always blew my mind that when I was there, the state, quote-unquote, floral emblem of Oklahoma was mistletoe. Now, I never think of mistletoe as, I mean, I thought it was a fungus. I thought it was a parasite. And it was the state flower, so to speak, of, uh, of Oklahoma. But in 1986, that all changed. They changed it to the state wildflower as the Indian blanket. And it was interesting when I acquired that quarter, knowing that they had made that transition back in the 80s to see the representation of the state wildflower on that quarter. And that's like, that's neat. Put it in the book there in the D slot. And that's, that's the way we go. But, uh, you know, the thing about the Oklahoma quarter is it came out in 2008 because Oklahoma, well, you think that Oklahoma was, if you looked at the way states came into the union, you think they went from east to west. But actually, a lot of states out west were already in the union before Oklahoma came in. 
And that was uh, 1907, I think it was. And it was like the 46th yeah, 46th state right ahead of Arizona, New Mexico, Alaska, and Hawaii. So it was a latecomer as far as states go. And that's why it made it so that when they put the states in out in the quarters in order of the way they were admitted to the Union, uh, Oklahoma was way late. So it was among one of the latter ones to be put in there. So 2008, it's got the scissor tail flycatcher and the uh, state wildflower, the Indian blanket. You are correct. Now, uh, Oklahoma is the place to be, I understand, uh, where the wind comes right behind the rain. But um, <laughs> uh, I did not know that about mistletoe. And, you know, I got to thinking, well, you know, wouldn't, um, well, I, I won't make the, the joke about Arkansas and kissing cousins and mistletoe, <laughs> but, but uh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that the mistletoe was uh, involved uh, at one time and that uh, I, didn't, I didn't even remember that you had lived uh, down in that corner of the world. So I'm not uh, sure you were alive when that happened. But, well, uh, if know, it was in the 80s. Yeah, no, was, I, I, I left there in 82. So. Yeah, I was barely alive. So I'm barely alive now. I'm barely awakened now anyway. <laughs> and so now I realize it's been 40 years since I lived in o- in Arizona. Or, yeah, I never lived in Arizona. In Arkansas. <laughs> Jeez, that's messed me up big time. So, <laughs> so do you want me to ask you a question or do you want to sure, ask me a question? Well, I, you, you go ahead. Put me on the spot. I'm always okay. on the spot. All right. Well, I'm going to give you a couple of questions here, and you can choose which one or both that you want to do here, because we were talking about congressional gold medals, and I know how much you like sports. And so I thought I'm going to ask you, we talked about primarily that congressional gold medals were made uh, regarding military, and then uh, the, they diverse into the authors and to the entertainers and, and to, uh, you know a few other pioneers and that type of thing. So I've got a couple of questions. The first question is, who was the first athlete to be so honored with the Congressional Gold Medal? Hmm. And the second question would be, and you can answer either or or both next episode, and that is, who is the uh, youngest recipient of a Congressional Gold Medal, and what was this individual's age and or, if you can tell me the backstory on it, that's great too. So I think those are a couple of them that uh, the information's out there. It's not going to be off your fingertips unless you've heard the stories connected to these particular occasions or you happen to have uh, been involved with the sponsors of the legislation. So those are the ones I'm going to throw out there. A little bit of a different twist this time, but uh, just the idea that uh, these are pretty interesting facts about our history that may not have been in some of the history classes or may not have been something of interest but oh okay we'll uh deal with that next go round that gives me time to think about it and in the meantime we have our interview with lewis galino uh exploring the world of modern numismatics and um some some helpful tips uh from him uh here is that interview the Coin World Podcast is very fortunate today to be joined by Louis Galino, an award-winning journalist and coin collector whose keen observations on the modern coin market have guided collectors for more than a decade. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you, Jeff, and uh, it's good to it's good to be with uh, both of you, gentlemen, on this fine day. Awesome. So I don't remember exactly what when it was that you started writing for Coin World, but I know it was like a decade ago or more or thereabouts. Uh, for the interest in full disclosure, you mm-hmm. write going topical every other month uh, in the Coin World Monthly, and then periodically you'll have a uh, a feature story as well as you just did on the 35th anniversary of The Simpsons right. and and the uh, bevy of neat coins that have come out of World Mints for that. You certainly are somebody that collectors, readers uh, might know, listeners of the podcast might know from all sorts of coverage, both in Coin World at CoinWeek.com. I think uh, the the Numismatist, the published right. by the ANA. You've done some other work for other outlets as well, but it's definitely. You're keenly following the modern coin market 
mostly with a world perspective, but certainly uh, the U.S. market as well. You had inter- exposure to international coins from a young age. Can you explain uh, or explore how this had an effect on your interest in world coins, if, if any at all? Sure. Um, that actually was um, in, in many ways the key catalyst for my interest in collecting, as well as uh, my father's influence, although he was not a what you'd call a serious collector. And I'm not sure that he did it as a child, but as an adult, he developed an interest in coins. And when I was a teenager, um, well, I, I should back up and say he, he, he was a, an American diplomat and we would come back during summers, what they call home leave. And uh, we would often go to several coin shows during those summers, including the 1976 uh, ANA convention in New York, um, that was quite a memorable event. So, um, you know, I spent my, most of my formative years living overseas in uh, Africa and in Europe, and particularly the years in the 1970s when I was in middle school, through I stayed till the end of. Um, I graduated in high school at the end of that decade. Um, I was living in Rome, the Italian capital, and that um, I already had started an interest about the time I got there that was more in American coins up to that point in the early 70s. But then living in Rome, I, you know, I was exposed to, you know, I'd go to flea markets with my father and see all, all kinds of, you know, I'd see ancient coins. It, modern Italian coins, uh, lots of uh, reproductions of various types of coins. That was really stimulated my interest further. Unfortunately, like a lot of um, people who started at a young age, um, when I, when I got to college, my, you know, interest shifted and um, I ended up uh, like a lot of, like a lot of us taking an extended period off from collecting in my uh, earlier adult years. Um, and then about uh, 20 years ago, I came came back into it and uh, kind of developed, uh, you know, became eventually what you might call a serious collector. And, and then, you know, as you mentioned a little over a decade ago, I got back into writing. And then that, of course, has reinforced, you know, my interest in collecting the two the two kind of feed each other. And uh, I think I've been able to get more out of the hobby by being somebody who writes about coins. And hopefully I'm a better writer because of that collecting experience as well. So I do want to find out because I, you know, some of this is just, hey, you know, this is uh, my chance to be nosy. Um, mm-hmm. What did you do in that interim period? I mean, because I know you, I mean, you've written on uh, foreign policy and other issues. Right. Uh, were you a writer all this time? Did you go into diplomatic service? What, where did life take you from, you know, the time you set coins aside to the time you picked it back up about 20 years ago? Well, um, after college in uh, Pennsylvania, um, where I majored in um, sort of a multidisciplinary major called International Studies, which was courses in history, political science, and economics. I've I've always been somebody that has interests in kind of all those areas. And I decided to continue my studies in graduate school. I actually, I made, I made a change sort of at the last minute. I had been admitted to a program in England where I was going to study arms control for a master's degree, but I ended up instead going to Indiana University uh, for a program for a doctorate in political science and um, where I specialized in um U.S.-Soviet relations and European uh, and a minor in European politics. That would have been in the from the mid '80s to the end to the end of that decade. And I ended up passing my qualifying exams for the PhD and writing a a long dissertation proposal that dealt with the uh, belief systems of Margaret Thatcher and Francois Mitterrand on 
USSR and, and how that was impacting things that were going on in Europe and in the Soviet Union at the time. Um, but then I, so I came to Washington to where I had uh, relatives living uh, to look for uh, full-time work. And um, eventually I landed a permanent position at the Library of Congress and the Congressional Research Service. And I did a variety of things there, but they partly included working as an analyst in um, foreign affairs, as well as in trade and environmental policy. The foreign policy stuff was what really interested me the most. At a certain point, I decided that I needed to just focus on my government career. And, and, you know, it's a very working um, for the Congress is very demanding. And um, so it it just became, you know, too difficult to to keep writing the dissertation and doing that. So I I gave up the, the doctorate and... But a few years later, in the 90s, I <clears throat> decided that I'd put my uh, my background in international affairs um, to use, and in addition to you know the writing that I was doing for the Congress on that. Um, so I became a freelance writer for newspapers and websites and foreign policy journals and so forth, and that was really my passion. Uh, I spent uh, a lot of my free time doing that and uh, uh, really got a lot of, I found that I got a lot of enjoyment out of writing, particularly for for media, which included the Washington Times and a syndicated column and um, so forth. That's what I was doing during that period. And then a little over a decade ago, I retired early from the government and uh, I wanted to find some part-time work that I could do from home that involved writing. And I decided that I would uh, switch tracks on the freelance writing and, and and do something related to my interest in coins that had been developing from an early age. And I thought it would be fun to take some of those writing skills that I developed and apply them to writing and um, I can still remember, uh, it was in the early, early 2000s, and I had I'd gone back to subscribing to Coin World, and, and I remember telling myself at a certain point, I, I, it would be great if I could, uh, at some point, become a regular contributor to Coin World. And so eventually, um, I sort of set, set my mind to doing that, and um, I was glad that that worked out. Yeah, there's sometimes there's a danger in taking an avocation and turning it into a vocation where uh, the, the lines tend to get blurred here. But with the desire that you had to become a uh, numismatic journalist, did you find that the training that you'd gotten in the general interest journalism was helpful to you as you made this transition into numismatic journalism? I did. Um, as as well as the, um, you know, working in a, in a uh, research environment in, in, a, in a government agency that for people who don't know the Congressional Research Service, um, it's one of several uh, support agencies that, that work directly for the Congress. They provide nonpartisan uh, research on virtually anything you can think of, and they maintain a cadre of experts in virtually every every field and they're they're very well regarded for their nonpartisan uh, work particularly in the form of crs reports for congress the discipline that you get from doing research in a professional environment um, that's something which you can apply to virtually any any field and perhaps even more so the experience that you get writing in a more general interest environment, and especially if you have deadlines, but even even if you know if if, you, if you've got a fair amount of time um, before things are due, um, just learning to write clearly and concisely and directly, you know, not getting bogged down too much and 
terminology or losing you know the focus and that kind of thing i think those kind of skills can apply to writing about anything and it's it's been my experience that the longer you know i've now been writing professionally pretty consistently since basically since the end of, well I, in in college i i did some um writing i you know i was editor of my high school newspaper and i in college i wrote uh, occasional foreign policy op-eds for the college paper and then in graduate school you know, i presented some papers and um uh i had uh, uh written a um a senior thesis in college about french foreign policy and i had a chapter of that published in a Swiss newspaper in the 80s. That was sort of my first major publication. So, um, and I think, you know, the longer you do it, um, you know, you hopefully get better at it. It comes easier and and you find that you can apply it to a variety of things. Uh, for example, sometimes uh, I'm a member of a Facebook group of, of uh, mostly people that I knew in high school and we we write uh, reviews of uh, films and shows that we've seen that we enjoyed and we think the other members of the group might want to be uh, <clears throat> enjoy so um you know i i sometimes get into you know writing <laughs> film reviews for for them so I think it comes also back to a lot of the, you have to maintain that focus on writing in a way that your audience is going to receive it. It's the uh, the communication right. theory, the source and receiver type thing, is that sometimes uh, some writers tend to get more involved in what they're trying to say and not in trying to make themselves heard. Were there any particular challenges that you were surprised by as you made this transition? You know, when you write about coins um you're dealing with uh you know a very passionate audience and um you know people have very strong opinions you know particularly american readers of, of coin publications for example have and as you know very strong views about the u.s mint and naturally not everyone's going to agree you know with with what you say especially if you're doing if you're doing any kind of commentary or, or, or even, you know, I, I've, I've done a combination of what I like to call straight news, which would include uh, my coin world articles and then more analytical slash commentary, um, which would apply to, to uh, some of my coin week columns, which I've done for over a decade. And so, you know, you sometimes get, uh, I mean, for the most for the most part, people have been very generous in, you know, the comments that they leave on blogs. Um, you know, for example, one of the sites that I write for will also carry the article on their accompanying uh, blog on uh, dealing with U.S. Mint matters. And uh, for the most part, people have been very complimentary. But you know, you always get s- certain people who disagree with you sometimes strenuously. And, um, I find that, you know, you can, um, you have to not be thin skin, of course. And, and, uh, if they're constructive, you know, there, there are things that you can always learn from people that, you know, that you disagree with. Um, another thing is that while I've, you know, long understood the importance of, um, being accurate and, checking, you know, your facts and, and, you know, making sure that you're certain about things before you, you put them in a, in a publication. When you're writing about coins, you're dealing with so many, you know, often little minages that may have been revised or, you know, for example, I was dealing with um, a few months ago with the uh, recent um, error that was discovered in a... Um, in one of the 2021 uh, second reverse type gold eagles. And I had used a source from Heritage where the person hadn't really done due diligence and looked up the original auction information and so ended up being a little misled by that. And uh, But a reader pointed it out, so I was able to go back and 
correct it. So it just, you know, sort of reinforces the point that you've got to make sure that you crossed all your T's. And when it comes to, you know, all the various little facts that go into those kind of articles. Now you, you touch upon something there that really does make it a challenge for not only observers, but especially participants in the modern coin market. It's really a moving target in many respects, certainly when it comes to uh, fast sellouts and new information coming out, issuing authorities, changing information midstream or, or changing the way they handle things. That has to be particularly challenging, especially for, you know, somebody in our role, but for collectors as well. What's the, what's your best advice for collectors to, in, in keeping that in mind when observing the market? Right. Well, I think the most important thing I think is to, um, to read, to read widely, um, of course, to subscribe to fine publications like Coin World and, and to uh, regularly read publications like Coin Week to join the ANA. There's probably no, no finer publication than, than the numismatist if you're looking for really in-depth in coverage, um, particularly of uh, historic, uh, you know, older American and world coins, ancient coins and so forth. That's important. I think, you know, developing uh, a network of friends that have similar numismatic interests. If you can sign up for, you know, news alerts and things like that. Um, a lot of the foreign mints um, will, will publish on their websites information about, you know, forthcoming releases. And, you know, of course, the dates may change and all that. But I think doing all those things help, but you're right. It is, it is challenging. And as a collector, I had actually a, an interesting experience this morning. I'm a, a fan of uh, modern, modern and for that matter, classic British coins. And as, as you know, the Royal Mint has a new series called British Monarchs um, that started a few months ago. Uh, with the coin for King Henry Henry the Seventh, yeah. well, they they launched um, the second coin for King James the First today. And first, I was pleased when I saw that they had pushed. This, I think this is the first time they've done it. They normally release at seven a.m. British time, or I'm sorry, at nine at nine a.m. British time, which means four a.m. for someone on the East Coast in the US and I saw that they had pushed it back to noon their their time, which meant you only had to be ready to go at seven. And so I was pleased with that. And um, they have a queue system. I was in the queue. I managed to get for it to be my turn by like 701 or so. And I um, tried to order the one ounce silver version by the time I got it tried to get into my cart. They were already sold out. And then I decided I would try for one of the other silver versions. Same thing happened. So I wasn't able to order anything. And all three of the silver options sold out during the first 10 minutes. So, you know, I can try my luck on the secondary market, but uh, the prices for those um, get pretty steep. And to tell you the truth, I, I think that on that series, I think they set the minages too low. They're, they're only 1250 for the one ounce and um, I think 700 for the two ounce and 275 for the five ounce. I think the one ounce being the coin that, that the majority of people can afford. Uh, and since there's worldwide interest in the British monarchy, I, I think something like 3,000 or maybe even more would have been, would have been more appropriate. So they're always, you know, everybody, of course, as you know, that tries to obtain, you know, hot, highly in demanded uh, modern issues runs into those kind of experiences. But it shows that even with the time being more convenient, even with the queue system that I have benefited from uh, in other instances, um, today I wasn't as fortunate. 
yeah, you're pretty active in the buying and the selling to feed your collecting addition, uh, addiction. Uh, what are some yeah. other, uh, what are some, some things that have helped guide that uh, for you and, and things you've learned paying attention to the market, both as a collector, a, a reseller on occasion, and certainly as, as a, somebody who's writing about these? Um, pretty much, you know, the things that I, that I mentioned, staying, staying informed, um, uh, things like, um, you know, uh, going to the um, websites of PCGS and NGC and looking at the uh, population or census numbers for particular coins. Um, does, does that matter as much for world coins when, you know, you think of the British don't necessarily collectors in Great Britain aren't um, slabbing things to the same degree that collectors here in the U.S. are. Right. It's you're right. It's it's um, definitely it's not used as much, although it has increased in recent years. Um, it's not as as big a deal as it is for American collectors in the American market, but it's still a factor, and you'll find that. Um, for example, I was just looking this morning at the King Henry coin, which which I did end up getting on the secondary market for more than I really wanted to pay, but I figured it was the first one. So even if I don't manage to collect the series, it's always good to have that first coin that tends to do well. And I noticed that the, um, the raw coins were going for a little bit more than I had paid, which was more than twice the uh, issue price and I noticed that someone who had a 70 that was listed for $600 which is at least four or five times the, the issue price um, now there aren't as many people out there that will necessarily be eager to, to get one of those as would be the case if it were a Silver Eagle or you know, something else from the U.S. Mint. But, it, you know, it can be a factor if something is particularly sought after. And a, a good example would be the first coin in the Great Engravers series that recreated the legendary Una and the Lion yeah. design that many listeners are probably familiar with. And, and the important thing is that unlike several other world coins that have, that have tried to do that. In this case, um, they used the original dyes and, and you know, other assets that the, that the mint still has. So that just became, a, a, you know, it, it, it actually didn't sell out Im immediately. I think it, it took about a week. And not as many people were really excited about it initially, but I think as word got out about it, it just became a sensation and you know sells for more than 10 times issue price and if you have a 70 i mean the prices are just astronomical like you know 40 times the issue price and you know there are people i i suspect it's it's more in japan and and in and in china um particularly J japan where the una design is Apparently very popular. Um, yes. <laughs> so I don't know, how, you know, how many people in Europe, you know, are were buying seventies, but um, certainly those that you know sent them in and, and got a seventy did well. I mean, my my rule of thumb when it comes to the, the modern coins, if if I can, you know, if I if I find someone that's selling a modern coin for roughly the equivalent of the the raw coin and what it would cost to grade it. If I can get a 70 and up for about that amount. Um, and I think it's something that may be um, desirable as a graded example, you know, then I'll, I'll pick it up. I'd be hesitant to pay multiple times, you know, that just because it was, it was in the top grade. So. I've just now, I want to synthesize this for the listeners. I've heard three tips. Uh, and, you know, the most recent one was about buying it graded for around that price. Cause you know, you have the certainty, you don't have the, well, I'm going to buy it and then pay for a grading and I might not get the grade I want. Exactly. Um, 
I have uh, the other one was buy the first coin of a series if you can. Those generally tend to do better. Absolutely. And then you also said something about you know it, maybe if there's something that distinguishes the production or the design. There are earlier coins, like you say, with Una and the Lion. I think Solomon Islands or something did something in 1998 or whatever. Now, I think the market for those have been dragged forward with with the right. Royal Mint's release. But it took this catalyzing event, you know, essentially 20 years later. So, so those are three big uh, tips that I, you know, I think listeners might want to write down. Uh, it's certainly something I'm going to keep in mind. Mm-hmm. You know, and so that's all well and good. What are some of the hardest one lessons that you've learned? Maybe when you misread the market or made a, a buying mistake, if you if you would call it that, because you know, I kind of think at the end of the day, you're still motivated by does this excite me? Does this you know, it's not a it's not a right. not a dealer, it's not a profit center. But when did you make a mistake, and what did you learn from that, and and what can we learn from you from that? <laughs> Right. Um, well, that, that's a good question. And, and you know, I, obviously anybody that um, has uh, been an active collector for a long time, um, particularly if it's been in the last, you know, two decades or so when there's been, you know, such an explosion of issues from world mints, you know, every, every collector has made, you know, their share of mistakes. And it's critical to the learning process to do that. Um I think uh, uh, perhaps a good example would be about 10 years ago, I picked up quite a few coins from the Perth Mint and from the Royal Canadian Mint that interested me, such as the, the Chinese lunar calendar coins. Now, in, in the case of the, uh, the bullion versions, those have, have done very well if you got them when the coin was issued and and particularly if you started early because silver was a lot was a lot cheaper but when it comes to the collector versions the the proof coins and the silver proofs of various sizes and um, particularly with some of the Canadian issues the theme may not resonate as widely worldwide uh, a lot of those uh, ended up declining quite substantially in value uh, about five years down the road. And, you know, that's the way it goes. But um, I learned from the process and I still, you know, enjoy, uh, you know, enjoy many of those coins. And I think, you know, it, it taught me that you need to, um, you know, try to be, disciplined as a collector and you know it's fine to have multiple interests but it helps to kind of have a game plan where you decide okay I'm gonna you know focus on this series or these three series or whatever and to give another example I uh, as you know I am a big uh, fan of the Mexican Libertad series and its various iterations um, which I've written about probably more than any other world coin. And although I've been interested in it for a long time, and I do collect a number of different versions, I regret not focusing earlier on building, say, a a graded set of the one-ounce coins, which they don't exist all on 70 because for the first 10 or 15 years, there are no there are no MS-70 one-ounce silver libertades. But nonetheless, as I, as I learned a few years ago, when uh, someone who had read my columns contacted me and explained that he had spent several years spending many thousands of dollars obtaining large quantities of you know, each year and going through and picking out the best ones and sending them in. And even, even though I wouldn't have been able to afford to do that, it would have been very beneficial to focus on a graded set earlier on. In this case, this particular reader whose experience ended up being subject of uh, one of my topical pieces a few years ago, he ended up building 
at least was the time the top registry set at NGC. So, but that really took, you know, a lot of expense and, and effort. Um, there are, of course, everybody, every collector, everybody's been at it, at it for a while, you know, has regrets that they weren't able to, you know, get, uh, you know, a particular coin that's done very well or that's very hard to find now. But, you know, it's all it's all part of the process. Awesome. I am going to let that be the last word. I appreciate all the, the tips and the insight, hear your story, learn more about you, and um, share some of that with the Coin World listenership. It's such a challenge for me, for anybody, but, uh, you know, there's, there's, we're bombarded with stuff for, for new issues, and I appreciate that you consistently prepare stuff for us that cuts through the clutter and the clatter and uh, showcases things in an interesting and informative way. And I, I thank you for doing that here today as well. Thank you so much. Great talking to both of you. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much for staying with us for the interview with Louis Galino. Uh, hopefully you learned something and appreciated it as much as we did him taking the time to speak with us and share some of his insights with you. Of course, those insights are regularly found in the print pages of CoinWorld, as well as other numismatic publications, uh, but it's a special treat to have him hear this episode. It's always interesting to talk to a fellow journalist about the experiences that we've had, especially as you transition. And that was of high interest to me personally here and knowing that it's not it's not an easy job. I mean, it's like he mentioned how he uh, spotted the uh, the coin world, got back involved with it. I thought it'd be neat to write for him. Now, here he is. He made it happen. So it's just one of those things that uh, if that's something you aspire to, it's really something that you can get involved with. You know, And if you are uh, collecting... The U.S. coins, and you've got them in those slabs, and you uh, haven't gotten them done with CoinWorld Plus yet, you need to check that out at CoinWorldPlus.com. If you're going to be on hand at uh, Baltimore at the Whitman Expo, they're going to be there. I know we're going to be at the uh, Central States as well and going to be making appearances throughout as we have some uh, unique programs that are coming up. We'll tell you more about that in the near future. But CoinWorld Plus uh, doing its part to help you, the coin collector, get the most out of your collection. Well, I do appreciate it once again you being here. Make sure you subscribe, drop us a line, let us know, and uh, we always look forward to hearing from you. But we always look forward to that next item that's going to be adding to your collection. So, in the meantime, until next time, happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, and we'll see you next CoinWorld Plus is your new way to collect. Manage your inventory, digitally authenticate coins, create your want list, buy and sell coins, and much more. Learn more about CoinWorld Plus at CoinWorldPlus.com or download the app now at Google Play or the App Store.